You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome, my friends. Welcome to another edition of The Corbett Report. I am your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you as always from the sunny climes of Western Japan on this 21st day of May 2011. I would like to recommend all of the listeners once again to check into my website, CorbettReport.com, where you can find previous episodes of this podcast, as well as articles, interviews, and videos created and conducted by myself in the past, and links to other alternative independent media outlets, such as ZeroPointRadio.com, which help to further disseminate the Corbett Report and other pieces of media worthy of your attention. And on that note, I would like to draw listeners' attention to the plight of ZeroPointRadio.com, which is once again experiencing severe financial difficulties as it has not received a single donation from anyone since, I believe, November of last year. So if you do use ZeroPoint Radio and do value the information it provides, I would suggest that you go to ZeroPointRadio.com to consider making a donation to help keep them up and running. And at the same time, I would, of course, like to remind everyone that the Corbett Report itself is independent, listener-supported, commercial-free media, and as such, does require your assistance in order to keep going. And on that note, I would once again like to thank all of those people who signed, signed up to be subscribers this week to the Corbett Report. That is, to give a small 100 Japanese yen per month donation to help keep the Corbett Report up and running. It's a very small amount, but all of it added together will hopefully make a very large difference and hopefully even allow me to spend more of my time on the Corbett Report as opposed to my day job. So once again, thank you to all of you for your support, and thank you also to those people who ordered the 2009 Video Archive DVD over the past week. And for those people who have done so, please uh, forgive a slight delay, but uh, I hope to be getting those out to you hopefully tomorrow, and I will of course email you to let you know that your order has been sent once it has been sent. But uh, my DVD burner actually has stopped functioning, so I had to buy a new one. So there was a slight delay there as I'm trying to fill all of these orders. So once again, thank you again for your support. But as always, we have a lot of information to cover in today's episode, so let's get straight to it. Most of the world outside the Soviet Union has heard by now of the Korean flight 007 carrying 269 persons between New York and Seoul, which strayed off course into Soviet airspace, was tracked by Soviet radar, was targeted by a Soviet Su-15 whose pilot coolly and after careful consideration fired two air-launched missiles which destroyed the Korean airliner and apparently its 269 passengers and crew. This calculated attack on a civilian airliner, unarmed, undefended as civilian airliners always are, has shocked the world. The plane with 269 people on board was on a heavily traveled flight path from Anchorage, Alaska to Seoul, South Korea called Red Route 20. For some reason, this flight strayed 300 miles off its course, heading straight for Seoul and flying over the sensitive Soviet military installation on Sakhalin Island. Then, to the horror of ground controllers, the pilot yelled out that all engines were out and the aircraft was falling. At first, the plane was reported missing. 
But then intercepted Soviet radio transmissions revealed the unthinkable had happened. The Soviets had tailed the distinctively shaped commercial jumbo jet for two and a half hours and then shot it down. The cause of the tragedy remains a mystery at the bottom of the Sea of Japan. And all that remain are unanswered questions and the grief of relatives who rode a lonely ferry as close as they could to Soviet territory to say farewell to their loved ones. My fellow Americans, I'm coming before you tonight about the Korean airline massacre, the attack by the Soviet Union against 269 innocent men, women, and children aboard an unarmed Korean passenger plane. This crime against humanity must never be forgotten, here or throughout the world. Let me state as plainly as I can, there was absolutely no justification, either legal or moral, for what the Soviets did. Despite the savagery of their crime, the universal reaction against it, and the evidence of their complicity, the Soviets still refused to tell the truth. They have persistently refused to admit that their pilot fired on the Korean aircraft. Indeed, they've not even told their own people that a plane was shot down. They deny the deed, but in their conflicting and misleading protestations, the Soviets reveal that, yes, shooting down a plane, even one with hundreds of innocent men, women, children, and babies, is a part of their normal procedure if that plane is in what they claim as their airspace. Welcome, my friends, to episode 187 of The Corbett Report, Crashes of Convenience, KAL007. Now, what you've just been listening to are actual news reports and other coverage from the time of the downing of Korean Airlines Flight 007 in Russian waters or international waters just off the coast of Sakhalin Island. The younger members of the audience especially, and even some of the older, may be uh, forgiven for not knowing of or not remembering the story of KAL Flight 007, because it has been an awful long time, and unlike some of the other spectacular plane crashes of recent decades and considerable events of the Cold War, this is one that is not generally brought up anymore, and it's uh, an incredibly important event in Cold War relations between the U.S. and the USSR that no one really seems to talk about at these days and which has received very little attention over the course of the past decade. But just to refresh our memories and make sure that we're all on the same page with some basic facts about what actually happened or what is claimed to have actually happened, let's start by constructing the official narrative of the KAL 007 flight and we'll turn to the usual sources for the official story. So let's turn to that bastion of truthiness, Wikipedia. Quote, Korean Airlines Flight 007 was a Korean Airlines civilian airliner that was shot down by Soviet interceptors on the 1st of September 1983 over the Sea of Japan near Monoran Island just west of Sakhalin Island. All 269 passengers and crew aboard were killed, including Lawrence McDonald, a sitting member of the United States Congress. The aircraft was en route from New York City to Seoul via Anchorage when it strayed into prohibited Soviet airspace around the time of a planned missile test. The Soviet Union initially denied knowledge of the incident, but later admitted shooting the aircraft down, claiming that it was on a spy mission. The Politburo said it was a deliberate provocation by the United States to test the Soviet Union's military preparedness or even to provoke a war. The United States accused the Soviet Union of obstructing search and rescue operations. 
The Soviet military suppressed evidence sought by the International Civilian Aviation Organization, ICAO, investigation, notably the flight data recorders, which were eventually released eight years later after the collapse of the Soviet Union. The incident was one of the tensest moments of the Cold War and resulted in an escalation of anti-Soviet sentiment, particularly in the United States. The opposing points of view on the incident were never fully resolved. Consequently, several groups continue to dispute official reports and offer alternative theories of the event. The subsequent release of transcripts and flight recorders by the Russian Federation has addressed some details. As a result of the incident, the United States altered tracking procedures for aircraft departing Alaska, while the interface of the autopilot used on airliners was redesigned to make it more ergonomic. President Ronald Reagan ordered the U.S. military to make the developing global positioning system, GPS, available for civilian use so that navigational er errors like that of KEL-007 could be averted in the future, end quote. Well, there in a nutshell is the broad outline of what we're talking about here, a flight uh, of a 747 carrying 269 passengers that was en route from New York to Seoul, South Korea via Anchorage, and somehow or other managed to stray into Soviet airspace where it was eventually shot down. Very interesting, and so in, we can get a little bit more information about the technical details of this. I'll, of course, include a link to the ICAO investigation report from 1993. That is the second ICAO report, the one that came out after the Russian Federation had turned over the flight recorders and transcripts to the UN. And uh, that was, of course, an integral piece of the puzzle, or at least uh, another piece of the puzzle that, that could help the researchers to put together a report worth reading, or one would assume. But I can't tell you exactly, because I can't provide a direct link to the actual report itself. I have not been able to actually locate that anywhere online, so if anyone knows of an actual link to the actual ICAO report from uh, 1993 about the KAL 007 Downing, I would love to read it, so please contact me through the contact form on CorbettReport.com. But in the meantime, I will uh, give you the link to the news release of the ICAO Completes Fact-Finding Investigation from August of 1993. And it's talking about their investigation of the flight and what they were able to discover given the new information that came to light in the early 1990s. So having said all of that, that's sort of the brief synopsis of what's going on, but why listen to that and read dry trans transcripts and reports from ICAO and other bodies when we could listen to the sensationalized, dramatic, ridiculous Discovery Channel infotainment documentary on the issue? To understand the complex factors behind the downing of KAL-007, we must first set the scene. In 1983, tensions between the United States and the Soviet Union were near an all-time high. President Ronald Reagan had declared the Soviet Union the evil empire. And the two great superpowers were engaged in a dangerous game of brinksmanship. On September 1st, the game turned deadly. 1 a.m. After stopping to refuel in Anchorage, Alaska, Korean Airlines Flight 007 departs on the second leg of its flight from New York to Seoul, Korea. The shortest route to Seoul would have taken the jet over Soviet territory. But due to the tension between the Soviet Union and the U.S., commercial aircraft routinely flew just outside the border of the vast USSR. Ten minutes after departing Anchorage, KAL-007 starts drifting off course. 
80 minutes later, the plane is no longer in contact with Alaska's air traffic control and is following an entirely new path. It is heading straight for the Soviet military base on Kamchatka Peninsula. KAL-007 is now out of range of any of the North Pacific radio beacons. The plane misses its first checkpoint, designated Bethel. After it passed Bethel, which it missed by only 12 miles, not really enough to give the radar controllers, even had they been watching much of a heads up, there are no more beacons on the entire North Pacific route until you get to Japan. Kamchatka Peninsula is home to several important Soviet military installations. As KAL-007 approaches Kamchatka, the Soviet air defense orders fighter jets to intercept the airplane. 32 minutes later, however, Flight 007 crosses Kamchatka and re-enters international airspace. Soviet air defense tracks the airliner as it continues on a southwest heading. KAL-007's cockpit crew continues to make weather and location reports to air traffic controllers in both Anchorage and Tokyo, apparently unaware that they have strayed into Soviet airspace. The passengers on that airplane, even the crew, in all probability, weren't even aware that they had ever violated Soviet airspace. Soon, 007 approaches Sakhalin Island. Within minutes, the airliner will again be in Soviet airspace. The Soviet Defense Command orders MiG-23 and Su-15 interceptors into the air. For 20 minutes, the fighters shadow 007. The Soviets had launched aircraft out to meet the intruder, came around behind it, and followed it across the island. At 3.15 a.m. local time, the jumbo jet pilot requests permission to climb to 35,000 feet. Three minutes later, SU-15 pilot Lieutenant Colonel Gennady Osipovich receives orders to destroy the aircraft. Osipovich fires his two missiles, each bearing 70 pounds of high explosives, and reports to ground control that the target is destroyed. It takes 12 minutes for the fatally damaged airplane to spiral 35,000 feet down. KAL-007 crashes into the Sea of Ahotsk, just north of Monoran Island, 350 nautical miles off course. Why did the plane fly so far off its route? How could a highly skilled crew who had flown the same flight hundreds of times not realize that they were following a different flight path on September 1st? How could they fly like this? How could an experienced pilot really ignore his navigation? This remains a mystery. Lawyer Juanita Madola represented the family members of the victims of KAL-007. The claim was uh, negligence on the part of the cockpit crew, that they had devices in the cockpit that would have let them know that they were off course in terms of coordinates, and also that they were over land when they should have been on water. So our argument was that they were totally oblivious to where they were and didn't care, or they knew that they were off course but were trying to fumble their way across the Pacific anyway. Could the Soviets have mistaken the civilian airliner for a spy plane? What? A spy plane? 
A 747, a passenger jet, being used as a spy plane in the Cold War to spy on Soviet facilities? Absolutely ridiculous. What kind of government or agency would possibly propound such a ridiculous conspiracy theory? Well, aside from the US government accusing the Russians of doing the exact same thing, of course. The United States guards its airspace just as jealously as the Soviet Union, but not as viciously. Soviet bear bombers occasionally test U.S. air defenses by flying unannounced into the American air defense zone. Each time, the U.S. scrambles fighter aircraft to intercept the Soviet bombers, but only to escort them out. When it comes to Soviet airliners that stray from their flight paths, the U.S. usually does no more than file a mild protest with Moscow. U.S. officials say those stray Aeroflot flights are no accident. They cite one incident not too long ago when a Soviet jetliner managed to wander off course and overfly a Connecticut shipyard on the very day a new nuclear submarine was being launched. This is David Martin. Hmm, okay, so that does seem to be something that there were historical precedents for, so it's not absolutely outlandish on its face to claim the idea that there was a, a commercial jetliner being used as a spy plane for, to fly over military installations. Well, as long as the American government says it, it must be conceivably true, right? So, so at least we have some basis for some sort of claim along those lines. But, but how about in this specific case? Are there any facts that would tend to go along those lines or anything that would complicate the narrative of this being anything other than a normal, regular civilian air jetliner that just happened to stray off course, wildly off course, into Soviet airspace at the height of the Cold War? Well, let's turn back to the Discovery Channel doc documentary in quotation marks for more on that and uh, I, I hope you'll note that at the very beginning of this clip of course they use the word coincidence series of coincidences to introduce this topic but at least they do cover some of the more interesting anomalies that were happening at the same time as this very flight with KAL 007 out of radar range a series of coincidences converge to create a tragedy there were several other planes in the immediate area that night. Another Korean Airlines flight was en route. In addition, 75 miles away, an RC-135, an American spy plane, was monitoring secret Soviet missile tests. The RC-135 is a converted Boeing 707, which has a similar configuration to a 747, but it is much smaller. These military spy planes would fly figure eights in and out of Soviet airspace, listening to Soviet communications and collecting data. The Soviets knew all about these kinds of missions because they were routine, they've been flown many times, and Soviet pilots had scrambled to actually chase down and often wave to some of these aircraft. Every airline had been warned that to intrude over Soviet territory could result in a possible attack. The whole area was militarized, so to have an airliner coming across this area, even by accident, set them up for this disaster. The stakes were raised even higher by the risky game of cat and mouse being played between the USSR and the United States. It was uh, common practice in those days for the U.S. Uh, to use RC-135s to tease the Soviets, mocking that they were going to uh, penetrate their territory. They would fly toward their territory and uh, the Soviets would bring up their radars and send up fighters and then the RC-135s would turn around. As 007 neared Soviet airspace, its flight path began to converge with that of the RC-135. The Soviets were watching the aircraft on their radar 
and different radar controllers in different locations were reporting position points to a central area and someone in that central command was plotting these positions on a map. Someone made an error in reporting these coordinates or reporting the numbers and when they plotted it they showed that the two aircraft had in fact moved into the same area, in fact had merged and then separated. Did the Soviets confuse the two planes and target the wrong aircraft? How could anyone familiar with aviation mistake a Boeing 747 for another aircraft? There are numerous superficial similarities in that they're both uh, large swept-wing, four-engine, low-wing jet transports. Both airplanes were just unpainted natural aluminum on the bottom of the wings and the bottom of the fuselage, so the coloration would be similar. If the Soviet fighter planes had approached the suspicious aircraft from behind and below, they would have seen an outline matching a 707. And a 707 converted into an RC-135 was what they were expecting to find. In order to clearly identify the plane, the fighter pilot would have to approach it from the side, where he would have seen the distinctive hump of the 747. Retired Army General Anatoly Kornikov was the chief commander of air defense for Sakhalin Island. We discovered an unidentified plane heading towards Sakhalin. Raiders were activated and interceptor pilots ready in their cockpits. Soon we could identify the plane. It was still far away. I immediately decided to launch interceptors on duty into the air. Lieutenant Colonel Gennady Osipovich was one of the fighter pilots sent to intercept the intruder. I took off, they gave me the course immediately northeast because the plane was coming from the north, from Kamchatka. At first I didn't expect it to be a military flight, but then they told me to activate my weapons and aim them at this target. General Kornikov claims every effort was made to identify the errant aircraft. We were making sure that the flashing uh, navigation lights were on. The pilot said, yes, the flashing lights are working. A flashing light indicates that a plane is carrying civilian passengers, but this made little difference to the Soviet general. But to... Judging by the shadow and configuration, he said it looked like an RC-135. I reported that I was ready to fire. No, they said, wait, don't shoot, don't fire your missiles. Approach his altitude and force the plane to land. In other words, they really didn't want to destroy it. I approached its altitude about 10,200 meters with readiness and I started to flash my warning lights. This is a well-known international signal. You are in violation. I did it again, but again he didn't answer. I reported that he wasn't reacting. They told me, fire warning shots from your cannons. I moved even closer to it and shot first in a direction like this, parallel to its flight path. I fought about four rounds of warning shots and turned a little and fired another shot. And again, there was absolutely no reaction, no transmission from it. The Soviets had to make a decision. The Boeing 747 was nearing Sakhalin Island, home to six military airfields and the gateway for the Soviet fleet to the Pacific Ocean. The plane was already approaching the island west coast. When I reported that the plane is absolutely not reacting and it's flying over our base, they gave me the order to destroy the plane. 
Hmm, curiouser and curiouser. So this flight was flying that fl that route over Soviet airspace at the exact same time as Soviet airspace was being invaded or infiltrated or flown over by an RC-135 spy plane that was spying on Soviet military installations during a missile test, and their paths did converge at one point. And this is all admitted in the official narrative of what actually happened that day, so, so none of this is actually even disputed. Well, it does at least bring to mind specters of Operation Northwoods, and I will of course put a link so people can go and refresh their memory with that plan, but it did include the idea of painting up a military jet, a drone aircraft, to uh, to look like a civilian jetliner to be blown up over uh, the, uh, the Atlantic to make it look like the Cubans, uh, act of Cuban terrorism in order to justify an invasion over Cuba. So the idea that the military would go to the extreme of painting up a plane to actually look like a civilian jetliner is not outside of the realm of possibility. And although I'm certainly not saying that's what happened, I have absolutely no basis for asserting that, but it, it does at least draw that historical parallel to mind. But uh, in order to find out a little bit more about this idea, we can turn to the New York Times from 1996, which released an interview with the man who flew the Su-15 that actually shot down Korean Airlines 747. And that's in a story that you can access from nytimes.com under the headline, Ex-Soviet Pilot Still Insists KAL-007 Was Spying. Gennady Osipovich held up his thick hands to show how 13 years ago he maneuvered his Su-15 fighter to blast a Korean 747 airliner out of the sky. It was the morning of September 1st, 1983, and Lieutenant Colonel Gennady Osipovich's unit had scrambled from its secret base on Sakhalin Island to intercept an intruder. After trailing the unidentified plane for more than 60 miles, the Soviet pilot zoomed alongside to get a look for himself. I was just next to him, on the same altitude, 150 meters to 200 meters away, he recalled in conversations with a reporter this weekend. From the flashing lights and the configuration of the windows, he recognized the aircraft as a civilian type of plane, he said. I saw two rows of windows and knew that this was a Boeing, he said. I knew this was a civilian plane, but for me that meant nothing. It is easy to turn a civilian type of plane into one for military use. Minutes later, he fired two air-to-air -air missiles, sending Korean Airlines Flight 007 crashing into the sea, killing 269 people and causing what President Boris N. Yeltsin has called the greatest tragedy of the Cold War. Thirteen years after the downing of KAL-007, de debate still rages over whether the Soviet Air Force showed a reckless disregard for human life and why the Korean plane was so far off course. Osipovich's brush with notoriety began when he was recalled from vacation in August 1983 and put on temporary duty. For several days, he lived in a small house at the end of the runway at the secret Sokol, or Falcon, base. On September 1st, his unit received an urgent order to take to the air. An unknown aircraft had passed over Kamchatka Peninsula and was heading towards Sakhalin. For us, that is everything, he said, recalling the order. It means that we just have to go up and kill someone. Colonel Osipovich was directed toward the intruder and inter intercepted the plane about 95 miles from Soviet airspace. He maneuvered behind the plane and from a distance of 13 kilometers, nearly 8 miles, soon had him in his sights. It was huge, he said. I saw everything, including the blinking lights on top and bottom. His first thought was that it was a Soviet transport plane being used to test the readiness of the air defense forces. I thought it was some kind of inspection because never before had I seen foreign planes fly with these blinking lights, he said. While American intelligence planes commonly flew along the Soviet periphery, Western commercial airliners never came close to the heavily militarized Soviet region, flying their passenger routes hundreds of miles away. 
Disputing reports that he urged his superiors to be cautious, Colonel Osipovich said he was prepared to shoot the plane down as soon as it crossed the border and still regrets that he was not allowed to do so. I asked the ground what to do, he said. They got scared and told me to force him to land. And that was our, this was our big mistake. If the plane had crashed on Soviet territory, he said, the authorities would have recovered proof that it was on a spy mission. End quote. Well, that's the long and short narrative of Colonel Osipovich, and you can go and read the full interview to find out some of the more, more of the details about that. But as far as 1996, as late as 1996, I should say, he was still saying and holding by the idea that this was a spy plane that he had shot down. And um, is claiming that because the the wreckage landed in international waters, well, there was nothing. They couldn't recover all of it, and therefore they couldn't prove that it was a spy plane. But it was enough for him. Well, that's an interesting thread of the story, and one that we will pick back up a little bit later. But first, we should perhaps take a moment to take stock of what we've learned so far, and ask why are we covering this at all? Why is this in an episode of the Corbett Report entitled Crashes of Convenience? What is the connecting thread here? And that's a very good question, and one that I think we can begin exploring with this clip. As they unfold in the shooting down of a Korean jumbo jet off the coast of a Soviet military outpost. Among those killed when the plane came down was a Georgia congressman, Larry McDonald. We'll find out what his wife has to say. She believes there was a conspiracy to kill her husband, and she is thinking now about trying to succeed him in Congress. We'll see what Kathy McDonald has to say about the death of her husband and find out what she wants this country to do about it. Well, that obviously raises the question, who was Larry McDonald? And that would be the obvious question to ask at this point. But like any human life, that's a question which would have numerous answers and would depend on whom you are asking it to. And I guess we could start by asking it of the U.S. government itself. And if you go to bioguide.congress.gov, you can find his official Congress uh, congressional biography in which states McDonald Lawrence Patton, a representative from Georgia, born in Atlanta, Fulton County, Georgia, April 1st, 1935, educated in the public elementary schools of Georgia, graduated Darlington High School, Rome, Georgia, 1951, Davidson College, North Carolina, 1951 to 53, M.D., Emory University School of Medicine, Atlanta, Georgia, 1957. Postgraduate training in urology, University of Michigan, Ann Arbor, 1963 to 1966. Practiced medicine in Atlanta. Served in the United States Navy, 1959 to 1961. Chairman, Vice Chairman, Georgia State Medical Education Board, 1969 to 1974. Elected as a Democrat to the 94th and to the four succeeding Congresses. And served from January 3rd, 1975 until his death on September 1st, 1983, caused by the mid flight destruction of Korean Airlines Flight 007 by the Soviet military over the Sea of Japan was a resident of Marietta, Georgia. End quote. But as sourcewatch.org would helpfully add, question mark, after reproducing the congressional bio biography word for word, it then adds this one sentence. At the time of his death, he was the president of the Western Goals Foundation and chair of the John Birch Society. Interesting indeed. Well, for those who don't know what the John Birch Society is, well, we'll take, a, again, it's multifaceted and it depends who you ask, but we'll take it from sourcewatch.org. Why not? The John Birch Society is a conservative U.S. organization that was founded in California in 1958 to fight the threat of communism. It represents itself as a membership-based organization dedicated to restoring and preserving freedom under the United States Constitution. It states that its members come from all walks of life and are active through the 50, throughout the 50 states as part of local chapters. 
The Society invites all Americans to explore its website, learn more about the John Birch Society, and consider joining with it in its mission to achieve less government, more responsibility, and, with God's help, a better world. JBS advocates the abolition of income tax and the repeal of civil rights legislation, which it sees as being communist in inspiration. For this reason, its its opponents characterize it as a white citizen society dedicated to preventing minorities from gaining political power. At one time, the John Birch Society was very powerful, and members included prominent residents of California, including the Knott family. In their early days, Birchers shared a common ideology and some overlapping membership with Fred Schwartz and his California-based Christian anti-communism crusade, end quote. Well, that's one way of putting it, and that's the take of sourcewatch.org, which obviously has its own agenda to promote, and I'm not pronouncing on that agenda either way, but at any rate, uh, that's their description of the John Birch Society, and in other places you would get other descriptions. So I myself am certainly not a member of John Birch Society, nor do I promote them or their work or commend you to them necessarily, but not having said that, they have produced some very, very important and very helpful work along the lines of what the Corbett Report does, which is trying to expose the international and internationalist organizations which have been and continue to be, and presumably will continue to, uh, infiltrate and take over the very mechanisms of national governments, which they will then use to work towards the idea of a one-world government, identified by the John Birch Society for decades as the New World Order, something that, in fact, in many ways, seems quite prescient right now. And I certainly disagree with the John Birch Society and the Birchers on their Uh, fixation on the idea of communism and collectivism as being the sole uh, enemy in this struggle and how everything sort of comes back to that, if not necessarily communist idea, at least to the collectivist idea, because uh, communism is no, no longer the terror, scourge, scare that it used to be. That's been replaced by those shadowy, scary Muslims with their big, scary beards. But uh, at any rate, the Birch Society is still very much committed to fighting collectivism. And if that sounds familiar to you, it's because a lot of the uh, the people that uh, we've talked about before and even featured on this podcast... I'm not sure if they have direct connections to the Birch Society or members. I have not actually even explored that, but uh, certainly sound very similar, such as G. Edward Griffin and his identification as, of collectivism as the uh, the key ideology which we are facing in this battle, or even Ron Paul and his, uh, his constitutionalism and return to gold-backed money and a lot of other things that are explicitly promoted by the Birch Society, who, of course, also explicitly promote Ron Paul as a uh, top candidate for government. So as I say, I don't come at this from a right or left angle, and I don't think that collectivism or communism is necessarily the be-all and end-all, and I certainly don't agree with certain of the Birch Society ideas or things that they advocated, or some of the things that even Larry McDonald himself advocated, such as the uh, maintenance of basically the uh, Red Scare, uh, McCarthy-era types of uh, well, draconian systems in in the government that uh, were set up to to try to find the un-Americans and and that sort of thing. Well, I don't certainly don't agree with that. I don't agree with the wielding of the federal government power to engage in witch hunts or anything of that sort. But I think it would be extremely unfair to characterize either Larry McDonald or the John Birch Society in solely those terms and in that f- framework for that ideological argument. So, in an effort to be much more uh, Uh, open to the facts of this investigation rather than just uh, relying on the ways that various other organizations have portrayed the Birchers or McDonald, let's actually turn to a clip of Larry McDonald on Crossfire. 
That mainstay of CNN political commentary from the left and the right side of the political spectrum that uh, uh, Timothy Leary once famously remarked was like watching the left side of the CIA debating the right side of the CIA, which is particularly humorous because, of course, Timothy Leary was eventually also revealed to be CIA. So take that for what what you will. But at any rate, here is uh, an appearance of Larry McDonald on Crossfire from 1983, shortly before the downing of KAL 007, in which he talks about his views. I wanted to play just an excerpt from this to give a representative idea of some of the views discussed, but I found the entire argument and conversation between uh, Larry McDonald and Pat Buchanan and Tom Braden to be just too fascinating to excerpt. So although the sound quality is not Uh, ideal, and I apologize in advance. This is obviously a transfer from an old videotape, so uh, there is significant buzzing. I hope you can turn up your uh, player of choice and will be able to hear this because it is an interesting debate. Of course, you can also go and look at the video on on Google Video. I'll provide the link in the documentation at CorbettReport.com. But let's listen to this. It's Larry McDonald and uh, Pat, Pat Buchanan and Tom Braden talking about the rather prescient ideas of Larry McDonald back in the 1980s, trying to get the word out about the New World Order. When you hurt, then, well, I mean, I want to get to the point why the John Birch Society is differentiated from other new right organizations. You can say Conservative Caucus or Nick Pack or, or Conservative Digest, and people say yes, no, yes, no. But you say the Birch Society, and there's a recoil. Uh, even among conservatives who will say, no, no, don't call me a member of the Birch Society. Now, why is that? Is that partly due to the fact that Bill Buckley's National Review, I think around 1964, read the Birch Society out of the conservative movement? Have you recovered from that? Well, I think Bill Buckley founded ACU in 65, partly to do that. Uh, Elements within National Review have also, beginning in 65, uh, I think very dishonestly, took a very strong tack against the society. Society would actually be termed more of the old right. I think the right. definition of the new but right why, would be vigorous and they, vigorous. Okay, but why? I mean, I don't know where you disagree with, uh, with, with the new right people, but why are you all, why do you carry around this tarnish, this taint? Well, let me, give, the you people a, that, let me people, give you another reason why you carry around the, the taint. I'd be glad to give you the answer. Mr. Mr. Welch. The reason is because uh, the society is the only organization in America that is organized at the grassroots level with paid coordinators, with chapters in the communities all across the country. Conservative caucus. Uh, not with chapters, not with a paid field staff uh, all across the, the but country. That, that's organization. And so the result is that uh, this is the one group, I think, that those who would radically change America seriously fear. And a tremendous campaign was launched in uh, December of 1960. Right. Uh, to move to discredit the John Birch Society and, frankly, launched uh, initial orders coming out of Moscow. Well, uh, Mr. McDonald, I'm not a conspirator. Uh, I think even Buchanan would vouch for that. Uh, well, but, you uh, are. Robert, Robert Welch. Relations, Robert Welch. No, I don't think so. Yeah, I'm a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. Is that a conspiracy? Well, you've certainly... Well, Let me just tell you what Newsweek says, that, says this. The John Birch Society considers communism only one arm of a national of a master conspiracy in which socialist American insiders are plotting to establish world government. Now, it also says, and here's Director John McManus, that's your public relations director, saying that former Secretary of State Alexander Haig and CIA Director William Casey are two of these master conspirators who are plotting to establish world government. Now, what do you say? You know, that kind of silly, asinine statement is what makes pe- make people laugh at the John Birch Society. Well, 
Tom, I'm sure, being a long-standing member of the Rockefeller apparatus, uh, and as a member of the Council on Foreign Relations of long-standing, you're fully aware that you, there is an elitist core in this country that has seen value in subsidizing communism, of protecting communism. It has? Sure. You're accusing me of subsidizing communism? No, no, I'm saying because that Because I happen is, to belong no, to a, no, to there a is an elite policy core. study group? No, no, wait a minute. There is an elite core in this country that has dominated American society. Well, I'm not one of so, them. I mean, trilateral face. commission. The trilateral the commission. Council on Foreign, Council on Foreign Relations. State here's Department, I suppose. Well, let's face it, they've dominated the State Department for 40 years, mm -hmm. and uh, pretty much openly All right, so. but what are they trying to do? Well, their objective now? is to try to bring about a gradual transition in our society, a dissolving of sovereignty, and a moving steadily to the left on the political spectrum. Well, who are the they? Belief, the elitist groups that I mentioned, particularly key individuals and policymakers in the Council on Foreign Relations. Is the International Monetary Fund part of this? Well, I would say the International Monetary Fund has certainly been set up for the purpose of facilitating that transfer of sovereignty and transfer of wealth on the road. Right, we elected Mr. Conservative. Let me just finish the point, right. because otherwise we're going to have a lot of un unanswered questions, that you are looking at a group that has worked to bring about a dissolution of national sovereignties on the road to world government. And certainly uh, you're familiar with uh, local professor Carol Quigley, who has been part of your club, in which he admitted all this. And he said in his book, Tragedy and Hope, the only thing I disagree is that we've worked to keep it a secret. And you see Arthur Schlesinger, Jr., writing way back in 1947, says, yes, this is the hidden policy of America. But we can't tell the American public because they're too unsophisticated to see the Who, value. What is the instrumentality of world government? What is the instrumentality of which you say about Arthur That's the silliest statement I ever heard. He well, never made anything like well, that. Well, let me suggest that you read the May-June issue of the Partisan Review of 1947, Tom, and you can read it for yourself. It's called well, that's the Arthur said there was a conspiracy. Oh. A conspiracy oh, to he promote didn't use communism? Oh, no, he didn't use the word conspiracy. I he said the objective was to bring about... Let me finish. I'll tell you. He said that the objective, the secret policy, which we can't tell the American public because they're not sophisticated enough to see the value, is that through a steady result of erosion of New Deals, we bring the American society steadily to the left, All right. and through a sound concept of benign containment, we merge into the vital center of the socialist left. Those are his words, not mine. Right, you think what, John let Kennedy let was a member of that conspiracy? No, no, let me ask you this. The uh, World Federalist Movement in the post-war era contained a lot of people who eventually broke with it, and a lot of people thought the UN in the post-war era, looked toward world government. Sure. Indeed, they did, up until 48, 49. But a lot of them said, look, we were utopian. That's over and done with. We can't move. And a lot of them came in Kennedy's government. Uh, Schlesinger was in there when they were fighting uh, in Vietnam, launched the effort in Vietnam. Schlesinger was behind the Bay of Pigs. In other words, look, isn't there some move that occurred in the post-war era that now has been dissipated because nobody believes in the utopian ideal of world government anymore? Well, I think there are those that realize that moving straight from a prototype of the United Nations into world government perhaps is tactically impossible. But phasing out uh, increasingly national sovereignty into regional government uh, and phasing out sovereignties into international treaties in multiple areas the whole could be around. The whole movement toward, quote, interdependence. Yeah. NATO is, uh, so, uh, is part of the conspiracy? Well, there are certainly elements in NATO. There are people in, uh, in NATO who are very strongly dedicated to the defense of the West. Uh, but at the same time, you find in NATO a steady dissolution. You find a growing weakness as a uh, NATO policy uh, dominated by State Department policies that uh, has not worked. Well, it's uh, a regional grouping, and I think, therefore, it may be suspect by the John Birch Society. We're talking with Congressman Larry McDonald, who has recently been elevated, I guess, to chairmanship of the John Birch Society, succeeding 
uh, Robert Welsh. We'll be back in a minute. Welcome back to Crossfire. Our guest is the new chairman, recently named chairman, of the John Birch Society, Congressman Larry McDonald, a Democrat from Georgia. Uh, Mr. McDonald, your, your predecessor believed that the PTA was too left-wing and, uh, and that John Birch Society at one time tried to infiltrate it, as, or so he said. He used the word infiltrate. <laughs> uh, you still, is that part of your program now? Well, I think when the PTA comes out in this program for the test ban treaty and when the PTA comes out for gun control, it comes out for obviously national legislative programs that have been linked with liberaldom, uh, having nothing to do with education of our children. I think many people are wondering what in the world is the PTA doing, and that includes members of the John Birch Society. Well, I wonder well about you. Uh, I wonder about you. I looked you up. You're, you're, you're a, the biggest joiner that I've ever seen in the world. You belong, as I counted them, to 67 organizations among which are the National Rifle Association, the American Pistol and Revolver Association, the Committee for the Right to Keep and Bear Arms, the Second Amendment Foundation, and the Citizens Committee for the Right to Keep and Bear Arms. Well, Tom, I think there's a real drive in this country to try to destroy the realization of our citizens that they have a fundamental constitutional right to keep and bear arms as the Constitution allows. And unfortunately, there are those in our society, including elements of the PTA nationally, not always locally by any stretch, but nationally, who would uh, believe that the federal government uh, should restrict the right of citizens to keep in bear arms. Can I get what back kind of to grades that? do you give Ronald Reagan as president? And what kind of grades does the John Birch Society give him? Well, I would say in his speeches, uh, Pat, you'd have to give him close to an A, B plus to an A. But in his performance, uh, What's somewhere... What's most disappointing? Well, I think the fact that the rhetoric is going one way and the record is going another. Let me ask you about uh, the, this conspiracy again. Well, you can take the issue of, of uh, the, one of the major problems of this country is inflation right. and the problems of the destruction of the dollar. And the fact of the matter is, in spite of promises of the contrary, uh, Reagan uh, has not moved to correct the deficiencies. We're now back to Keynesian well, economics despite uh, comments to the contrary. Do you think that's a p result of the conspiracy you mentioned? Is there somebody working on them to get the inflation so that so that this country will be weakened. Well, as a man who campaigned against elitism, as a man who in his campaign rhetoric said that he would not be having the Council on Foreign Relations trilateral types dominating his cabinet, he's got about 250 members of such in his administration. Well, let me ask you about Bill Casey. Now, I've known Bill... members. I've known... Well, of the, of the trilateral committee I've known Bill CFR Casey in since, the administration. I've known Bill Casey, the director of CIA, since World War II. As a matter of fact, in World War II, he was my boss. Now, you... you your uh, public relations director, the John Birch Society, says that Bill Casey is a part of this conspiracy well, that's trying to bring Casey, about world before, government. Before he became CIA, one of his big jobs was aiding in the transfer of technology and uh, goods and so forth to the Soviet Union, uh, helping the Camera River Project, the Export-Import Bank. Oh, the finance is the Export-Import Bank part of the conspiracy? I think the, I'm the whole drive the that the, the fact that the American people have been tapped steadily especially since World War II, to finance their enemies and to have the massive technology transfer to those uh, well, who I agree with you. You know that from the Braden Doctrine in the, in the agency, uh, which uh, you're very familiar with, 
and the feeling that uh, we must somehow subsidize the quote non-communist left. Uh, that's among our so-called allies. Braden was and in country after country, left? that turned out to be the communist, mm -hmm. the crypto-communist masquerading. Yeah, as that's Mr. That's Mr. Mitterrand who has taken the strongest position against the Russians of any Western European. Well, leader. he was about to lose everything at the polls, and he had to show some sign. Uh, it's very difficult to say exactly how far that will Congressman be. Congressman McGonnell, he's yeah. been using the term conspiracy. No, I didn't use it. No, for no, heaven's no. sake, Pat. The John Birch Society used it. I don't want to go through the tapes. <laughs> well, it is. It don't blame it on me. He <laughs> used it. You've used it 45 times. That's right. They say this is a conspiracy. Right. I want to know what the conspiracy well, is. Come. I'm trying to find out who's in it and what agencies of government in it, because I want to fight it along with you. You look and like great, Tom. Let me tell you, Tom. <laughs> you, you, you tell me, uh, you know, how can I join the John Birch Society? Well, gosh, Tom, you got no problem at all. All you need to do is write a letter to the John Birch Society, Belmont, Massachusetts, 02178, and yeah. tell them that you would like to purchase for $2 a copy of the Blue Book. Tom, you read it, and I think if you're a dedicated American, you will agree with every word, then you get in touch with me, and we may even sign you up. Yeah, but it says here in one of your, pub uh, one of your publications, not just anyone can be a Bircher. Now, how I can I be a Bircher? Anyone. Now, if you don't believe in the Constitution and limited government and free enterprise and biblical values of morality, I believe in all those, but I don't. Qualify. I don't well, believe there's a conspiracy. He'd make a lousy well, candidate. Well, you know, as, as a matter Pat of fact, a member of the conspiracy, he's a member of the press. <laughs> let me ask you. He's used now. Mr. Braden's used for the forty-seventh time the term conspiracy. Now, let me ask you seriously. When you use people like Casey, who was on the Council on Foreign Relations, David Rockefeller's Trilateral Committee uh, Commission, what do you mean? Or do you mean? Is that your term, the term conspiracy? Well, there are many different levels of the problem. But yes, the term has been used, the term of conspiracy, when you have a group of people... They, I mean, they're actively, actively collaborating, and at the other end of that point of collaboration are communists, and on this end of the point of collaboration is Bill Casey and trilateralists and, and CFR. Uh, you have people who are part of the elitist structure of this country that have dominated this country openly for 40 years. I know, but they're not... Is that a conspiracy? Now, wait a minute, wait a minute. If people quietly working together for evil objectives, two or more, that by definition is a conspiracy. You have by their own admission, you look at the tragedy and hope by Professor Carol Quigley, who's a member of this elitist group. He says, sure, we've been working this. Sure, we've been collaborating with communism. Yes, we're working for a global accommodation. Yes, we're working for world government. The only thing I object to is that we have kept it a secret. And I think we have gone so far along we should come out and say. I'll bet you a dollar and a half that Bill Casey doesn't know who Professor Quigley is. I don't. He's at Georgetown a number of years uh, ago. He, he, he died a couple of years ago, and he wrote The Tragedy and Hope. He's a very noted member of, the, of your club, Tom. Tom, you've uh, got to broaden your reading a little that's bit. Right. You know, well, what, I, what I ought to do is read more about conspiracies, and that's why I'm interested in what Well, I'll tell you what, what, what you ought to do is go back and look at your founder, Edward Mandel House, because he wrote the book Philip Drew Administrator, and in this... Colonel House said that what he envisioned for the world was a world government along socialist lines as envisioned by Karl Marx. Now, that's, mm -hmm. that's your leader, uh -huh. Tom, so you got to go back to the beginning. Well, his leader was Woodrow was. Wilson. Do you think he was a communist? No, I think Woodrow Wilson uh, was his follower. Uh, I think Edward Mandel House dominated Wilson, not the other way around. Mm -hmm. And uh, so Edward Mandel House, uh, that was, uh, we ought to make that clear, he was Colonel President House. Wilson's uh, principal Alter, alter ego, that's correct. Yeah. Uh, so he is the he is the real villain from which all no, these no. conspiracies. Uh, no, 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 no. He is a defend. major figure, Tom. But there is has been, unfortunately, in the West, uh, an element 
there are good members in the Council on Foreign Relations, dedicated patriotic people. You've had Sproul Braden, who was a member of the Council of the Birch Society, Bill Buckley's and Council on Foreign Relations. You've got some dedicated people, but the driving forces have very clearly been willing to collaborate, subsidize, work for technology transfer for what they feel is some type of an accommodation and merger. And I, I submit this would be a disaster for the American Republic. Are there any Our in guest, Congress? Sure. Our guest has been Congressman Larry McDonald of the John Birch Society. He's the new chairman. He succeeded uh, Robert Welsh, who has stepped down, as I understand it. Is that correct? He's been sort of promoted to chairman emeritus. He's been emeritus. promoted chairman emeritus and founder. And Tom Brady and I will be back with final comments in a moment. Well, in some ways, it's very depressing to note how little has changed in the past 28 years, isn't it? Especially with Tom Braden's consistent and vitriolic attacks on the idea of conspiracy. You think it's a conspiracy. There's a conspiracy. So tell us about this conspiracy. Who's behind the conspiracy? At least Pat Buchanan does point out the fact that, uh, that Pat Braden had used that term about, oh, I don't know, 40 plus times during that 15-minute uh, conversation. So there was definitely the concerted tactic to insert that CIA-invented phrase conspiracy theory into the conversation. And I will direct you back to episode 50 of this podcast. Uh, in order to find out more about the C word and where it really came from. But uh, at any rate, uh, we can see that very much similar tactics, although perhaps with a little bit more finesse, are used these days to try to discredit anyone who dares to bring up the idea that people in positions of power would actually use their power and influence in order to bring about an ideology which they openly declare themselves to be adherence to. Oh, what, an, what a ridiculous conspiracy theory that would be. Well, as, as I think, I, I certainly think that was an interesting conversation and, and quite prescient for, uh, considering that was, again, 28 years ago. So certainly Larry McDonald was seeing things uh, that many people were not at the time and it's easy to look back from our position today and criticize this or that aspect of, of Larry McDonald's take on it, but I think just to, in order to assemble that type of uh, worldview back 28 years ago when it, access to information was so much more stifled is uh, at least somewhat impressive and worthy of some intention. So there we have at least some interesting connection to this Korean Airlines flight. We have the man who ju had just become the president of the John Birch Society, a sitting member of Congress, was actually killed on board that flight as he was making his way to mark the 30th anniversary of the Korean armistice, along with other senators who, as it turns out, were actually supposed to be on that flight, but at the last minute changed their flight to another flight. But if you think this is where the story starts to get a little bit strange, well, you haven't seen anything yet. For the really bizarre ideas in this story... Well, we have to turn to the, the immediate aftermath of the crash of 007 and the recovery, or lack thereof, of the wreckage of that flight. And things start to become very strange indeed. Well, let's turn to the Discovery Channel mockumentary once again for uh, the official story of that recovery effort. Based on data from Soviet radar... KAL-007 did not plunge straight down after being struck by the missile. Instead, it went into a long, wide spiral. Here, on this graph, we see the plane's movements after it was hit. Here is the downward spiral with loss of altitude and speed. With the spiral descent, the plane's fuselage skin started disintegrating 
The debris was dispersed over the 5 to 7 kilometer radius. Adding to the mystery surrounding KAL-007 was the relative lack of debris found at the crash site. This led to accusations by the Soviets that KAL-007 was indeed a spy plane. To this day, General Kornikov is skeptical that 007 was a civilian aircraft. I'm still convinced there were no passengers on that plane, and I have grounds to think so. There were countercharges that the reason there were no bodies was that the Soviets had captured the passengers and were holding them as prisoners. So where were the remains? Submarine Captain Mikhail Gears piloted one of the submersibles involved in the recovery. We were actually looking for the Boeing or what was left of it. And our main task was to recover the black boxes. Once the Soviets found the black boxes, they needed to determine if there had been any passengers aboard the alleged spy plane. Only the parts of four human bodies, including one child, were ever recovered. We found bones and body parts. You've seen my pictures. There were many underwater creatures that immediately eat everything, including crabs, and there was a strong current there. For a month, at a depth of over 200 meters, they were trying to fetch human remains from underneath a heap of plane debris. The remains were taken to the seashore, and doctors tried putting body parts together to determine how many people there were. Identifying the bodies was impossible. In fact, authorities were unable even to prove that the dismal remains were from KAL-007. There were very few remains from the crash of Crino Lines 007. And we now know that the Soviet ships had actually found the wreckage and they did not either salvage the cargo or find ways to give back to the families anything of the possessions or the bodies of the passengers. There is speculation that uh, any of the remains that were either recovered from the wreckage or that washed on shore were destroyed by the Soviets because they did not want evidence of what they had discovered. So where were the bodies? How could they have disappeared so quickly? Some experts believe the aircraft was totally destroyed upon hitting the water. Very little remained of the plane and its passengers. If the wreckage is seriously uh, torn apart and, and just in small pieces, we'd have to assume that it had a lot of airspeed and uh, a lot of impact when it hit the water. Conversely, if the uh, fuselage and other parts of the airplane are largely intact, then you'd have to assume uh, a lesser impact, but still enough to uh, kill everybody on the airplane. KAL-007 would have disintegrated upon crashing into the ocean, the same way as if it had impacted upon the ground. Still, many relatives of the victims believed that because there were so few remains, that there must have been survivors. There's still some family members who would like to believe that their loved one is alive, even if they're being held hostage in prison in Siberia. The fact that there were very few personal effects that were found means that there is no closure for the family members. They had no memorabilia of their loved one that they could bury and have a place to go grieve over. 
1993, Russian journalist Andrei Ilyish organized a second dive to the crash site to search for clues. He invited Mikhail Gears to help with the investigation. The main question still engendering needs is why no corpses were found. The task was to raise numbered parts of the plane and dissipate the ridiculous theories that this was the wrong plane and the Russians were hiding something. I retrieved the numbered parts so that we could send them to Boeing and Seattle and prove that they belonged to that specific plane. Ilyesh personally retrieved several items from the sea bottom which he believes proves that there were no survivors that KAL-007 was utterly destroyed on impact. This is inflatable life jacket. You can see that it belonged to Korean Airlines. The passenger apparently didn't have time to put it on. It all happened very fast. We brought this up from the bottom during our expedition. It was held down by big metal parts, otherwise it would have floated up and been carried away by the current. But what about the human remains? We now know that the crash debris was quickly dispersed over the ocean floor by swift currents, scavengers, and time. Interesting, isn't it? Well, we were presented with a number of bold assertions in that few minutes of documentary, in which, uh, well, there were some various facts presented, and we can easily check whether or not they were actually factually the case. And for example, we heard the woman saying that there were no uh, personal items or memorabilia that were delivered by the Russians to the uh, to the Japanese or handed over to the Americans or the Koreans from the um, wreckage. And that is actually not true. In late September of 1983, the Russians met with uh, some Japanese uh, representatives and actually handed over among other things, some footwear, both single and paired. And the Japanese had also retrieved some fo footwear, and altogether it came to 213 men's, women's, and children's dress shoes, sandals, and sports shoes. So there were shoes of people. There were no people. There was no luggage recovered. There were uh, pieces of uh, wreckage recovered, but there was no baggage, there were no people. And the doc Discovery documentary basically says that the people were eaten up by scavengers like crabs and the <laughs> and dispersed uh, in a very short time. Well, very interesting. Well, the other, uh, the other major assertion there was the assertion by attributed to experts who believe that the plane would have simply broken up, disintegrated when it hit the water, and that would explain the large dispersal of wreckage and also why no bodies were recovered, because it was just too uh, unimaginably horrific to imagine that anyone or anything could have survived in any form from such a, an amazing crash. Well, that's not necessarily the case, and one indication of that is the descent of KAL-007, which we know from the uh, data that's been provided through from the Russians to the ICAO. We know that the plane took a 12 minutes to descend through the 35,000 feet to its final resting place in the ocean, and it took 12 minutes of a giant corkscrew turn that it was involved in, and uh, apparently, according to the ICAO report, there would would have been, there would not have been a serious enough uh, puncture of the cabin itself to 
entail complete decompression uh, all at once. The passengers would have had time to have put on their oxygen masks and therefore would have actually been conscious for the entire 12 minutes of descent. A rather horrifying thought. But it also leads to the idea that there was enough power in the engines for the pilots to have actually attempted a water landing. And although this sounds pretty far-fetched, it is not completely out of the realm of possibility, especially considering the uh, flight data recorders that the Russians handed over with the, uh, the voice cockpit recorders all completely go blank after 1 minute and 44 seconds after the, uh, the missiles actually struck the plane. And it's quite apparent that the missiles, although they did strike and did cause decompression and obviously had a severe effect on the plane, they did not cut the engine's power and uh, they, it was not a plummeting straight down. The plane began a slow descent, which to certain a certain extent the pilots were fighting against. So... Definitely, it was not simply a case of this plane plummeting into the ocean all at once. So during its uh, long and very uncomfortable, I imagine, descent, well, what was happening? Well, the pilots, to whatever extent they would have been able, would have been attempting to uh, facilitate a water landing. And in such a case, what is the possibility of survival? Well, as it turns out, in a planned water landing, under ideal conditions at any rate, as in not any sort of catastrophic thing or not something that's completely unplanned, the survival rate is actually, well, usually above zero. In fact, according to Wikipedia, In all cases where a passenger plane has undergone an intentional water landing or ditching, some or all of the occupants have survived. And you can look at the numerous examples here from from the 2009 all the way back to the 1950s, talking about case after case after case of water landings where some or all of the passengers were able to survive. So although I'm certainly not saying that's what happened, it certainly could conceivably in the realm of possibility have happened. And from that we have this rather interesting website. It's rescue007.org, and it is uh, the product of a group of people who are working to, well, uncover the truth about 007, and they have their own ideas. And basically, this website is devoted to the idea that not only did the uh, pilots manage to do a water landing of KAL 007, but that the passengers survived and were taken hostage by the Russians, who have been holding them ever since. Well, it sounds quite outlandish, and I must admit to a certain extent it probably is, but it is nonetheless quite intriguing, and Rescue007.org still has a wealth of information on KAL007 that I would recommend people at least checking into, because I think the number of documents and other things that they've assembled uh, from government sources and others is quite impressive in and of itself, and in lieu of that ICAO document, probably provides the single best one-stop resource for uh, resources on the KAL007 disaster. And uh, it is a rather interesting story that they have pieced together here. And basically, as I say, the thesis is that there were survivors and they were captured by the Russians. I will leave you to explore the site on your own and the wealth of information contained there. But let's just take a look at their entry on Lawrence Larry Patton MacDonald. Quote, Upon arrival in Moscow... McDonald was taken to the Lubyanka KGB prison, where he was given the designation prisoner number three. While at the Lubyanka, he was kept in isolation, taken from his cell only for questioning. Following a number of questionings, 
Mr. McDonald was moved to the Lefortovok KGB prison also in Moscow for continued interrogation over a period of several months. In Lefortovo, prisoners were kept in cells that were artificially cooled to near-freezing temperatures. These cells were about 1.5 meters on a side, or roughly 4.5 feet. The dirt floors were submerged in water so that the prisoners either stood or lay down in mud. There might be a slanted bench against which the prisoner could lean his feet against the opposite wall. After a time in Lefortovo, Mr. McDonald was then moved to a Daka summer house in Sukhonova, near Moscow, where the interrogations continued. Mr. Schifrin's sources indicated that they had strong reason to believe that, while in Sukhonova, McDonald was interrogated under drugs that may have eventually resulted in identity loss. He was brought eventually to a prison in Karaganda, Kazakhstan, the region where the Soviets had important nuclear missile test ranges and similar installations. He may have been brought to this area to be interrogated by experts there as part of the effort to find out what he could say about the U.S. nuclear program and what he knew about the Soviet program. End quote. Well, again, that is a very interesting site with a lot of information, which I will leave you to explore in your own time, given the caveat that, of course, I am not propounding this as my own theory or necessarily subscribing to the theories of this website, but it is information to be taken on board at any rate. But we do have a number of different conflicting stories here, of course, not all of which can be true, from the idea that this KAL-007 was a spy plane that was being used to spy on military installations during a sensitive Soviet missile test that was shot down because of its spying, to the idea that the Soviets had shot down this flight, perhaps even in an attempt to specifically gain access to McDonald, or had forced the flight to land without even shooting it down, perhaps might be one of the theories. Or we might have the idea that the powers that be were uncomfortable with McDonald letting loose their plans and had the entire incident staged as part of a giant plan to get rid of their opposition. Uh, personally, I'm going to remain agnostic on this one. I certainly find it highly unlikely that there, this was somehow manipulated to that much of an extent, but it is nonetheless an open mystery as to how KAL-007 really managed to get so far off co course with pilots who, of course, not only had decades of experience and including military experience, but pilots that had even flown this exact same route for years on end, including even flying the president of their own country on that route. I mean, this was not something that was done by a bunch of rank amateurs who didn't know the difference between flying over water and flying over land. So again, there are numerous things that are left unexplained with this. And however the crash occurred, it was nonetheless a crash of convenience for those who would prefer not to have someone in Congress questioning their agenda. And on that note, we'll leave today with the reminiscences of Larry McDonald by none other than Congressman Ron Paul, another congressman who, well, has had his share of uh, interesting uh, moments, I would say, including the Bilderberg 2008 leaked information that Ron Paul was potentially a target for assassination by the global elite. So on the words of Ron Paul, I will leave you today to begin the exploration of this rather mysterious flight, KAL-007, for yourself and pondering the various mysteries on your own. That's it for today. I am your host, James Corbett, asking you to join me again next week for another edition of The Corbett Report. <laughs>